0: let's get in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 12, Genesis chapter 12, back in the book of Genesis after a few week break with the holidays. Wednesday night we're going through the Bible, Genesis through Revelation, so we're at the very beginning, Genesis 12, we're just getting started. How old do you think I'll be by the time we finish Revelation? Eight years I might be 80 by the time we finish. <clears throat> I just had my 60th birthday. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for a new year. Thank you that the Christian life is all about new beginnings. And as we study the life of Abraham and are challenged in trust in you, challenged in faith in you, we pray that you would grow us. And we pray that you would really uh, bless this study tonight and speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. (coughs) The first 11 chapters of Genesis have to do with early history. There are four major events that summed up these first 11 chapters. The first is creation, then the fall with Adam and Eve. I just, I'm going to start coughing, so I'm just going to have some water, so... Does anybody have a cough drop? Can I have it? Well, that would be great. I was going to bring one up. You can just chuck it up here. Joan, you can just try your baseball arm. So, Thanks, Tawny. Appreciate it. Yep. First 11 chapters, creation, fall, the flood, and the Tower of Babel. Chapter 12 changes in the book of Genesis. We go from early history to focusing on Israel's history, and it goes to four major people. It goes to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. So we're going to be centering on Abraham for the next several weeks. And Abraham is the father of Israel. It's from Abraham that God birthed the nation Tonight, we're going to be looking at a life of faith. As Abraham's called by God, and in Abraham's story, we see characteristics of God, we see characteristics of Abraham, and we also learn about ourselves. So let's look in verse 1 of chapter 12. Now the Lord had said to Abraham, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. So his name is Abram. Later on, God will change his name to Abraham, and the study begins with God's call. God speaks to him, and he says, I want you to get out of your country and away from your family to a land that I will show you. The end of chapter 11 introduced to us that Abram was living in Ur of the Chaldees. History tells us archaeology that this was a very prosperous city with many advancements, Abram's life would have been pretty good in Ur of the Chaldees. And he leaves that existence to really go to a nomadic existence where he's traveling from place to place with his tent. The challenge with this call is he has to leave what's familiar, get out of your country, get out of your culture, leave your family. I want you to also leave your family and then go to the land that I'm going to show you. The knowing is in the going. And Abraham's going to respond, and he's going to take God up on his, his offer. And when we think about it in our lives, are we so comfortable to this place? Are we so connected to certain people that in essence we say, God, I'm not going to follow your call. God's call in our lives sometimes feels very scary, doesn't it? Because it involves us surrendering completely to the Lord. But God's call is best for us. And sometimes God's going to call us right in the midst of the place that we're living in. But sometimes God will call us to leave the place that we're in. But the key is being surrendered to the Lord, saying, God, I'm willing to follow your call. Wherever you lead me, I will go. We've noticed that our relationship with God is where he's in charge. We're the disciple, and he says, come follow me. That means that we have to be willing to Go where he's leading us. He's our shepherd. It means that he's in control. God, I need to follow you in the call that you're placing upon my life. At different junctures in my journey and Amber and I's journey together, we've sensed God's call, and it's always been scary, and it's always been difficult, and it's always involved a sense of surrender, but it's always been worth it. It's always been worth it. And it's really what makes the Christian life exciting and an adventure is when you feel the Lord begin stirring on your hearts and challenging you to take a step of faith. And we never want to grow to the point where we're too mature for a step of faith. Amen? Where we would miss the call of God, that we would miss what the Lord is asking us to do. We want to live our lives open-handed. Is it wrong to have a plan? No, it's good to have a plan. I think it's wise to to have a plan, but submit that plan into the hands of the Lord because you don't know when God's gonna call. You don't know how God's gonna close doors and open doors. You may think, well, I'm gonna be here for the next 10 years. You don't know that. I, I don't know that. And Abraham here hears from God and he's willing to step out in faith. And part of the journey of faith also is God shows us one step at a time. And as we obey the first step, then he shows us the next step. We like to know all of the steps, don't we? A through Z. I want to know every step. I want to know what this is leading to and the knowings and the going. And if you don't do A, God's not going to show you B. And be willing to trust him that he's going to reveal things as you go. So God calls, but he also gives a promise. He says, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. The promise upon Abraham is, I'm going to make you into a great nation. This is really the crisis of faith for Abram and Sarai, Abraham and Sarah, because they're barren, not able to have kids, but yet God has told them, you're going to be a great nation. And it wouldn't be until they're much older that God fulfills this promise and gives to them A son who would then develop into the nation of Israel what was the purpose in God blessing Abraham making him into a great nation that nation would be the nation of Israel so that they could be a blessing and this gives us an understanding of why God pours out blessing in our lives he blesses us to be a blessing he's blessing Abraham to be a blessing to others So all of the blessings that come into our lives, physically, spiritually, emotionally, it's not just for us to enjoy, but for us to pass on and share with others. We believe this as a church family, as Rocky Mountain Calvary, as the Lord blesses, we want to be a blessing to others. We want to be a blessing to the body of Christ as a whole, to other churches in our city throughout our state, throughout throughout the world. We want to be a blessing to those that don't know Christ as their Savior. We want to be a blessing to, to our community. One way to close off God's blessing in our lives is to not share them. So if God has blessed you in any area of your life, the purpose of that blessing is to be a blessing to others. And notice he's speaking of all of the nations of the world here in verse three, I will bless those who bless you and I'll curse those who curse you and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So there's some protection that goes to Abraham and his descendants, the nation of Israel, where God says, Abram, those that bless you are gonna be blessed. But those that curse you will be cursed. And I believe that this holds true to Abraham's descendants, the nation of Israel, that God blesses those who bless the nation of Israel. Now, is is Israel perfect? No. Do all of the decisions that they make, are they perfect? Absolutely not. Has has Israel been perfect throughout their history to, to this point? Absolutely not. But are we perfect? Are our decisions perfect? And so, for us to be able to say, I'm going to bless the children of Israel because I want to receive God's blessing. One thing I want to make sure we don't miss is the end of verse 3 And in you the families of the earth shall be blessed. So, God's going to bless Abraham to become a great nation, to be a blessing to all the nations. God's heart for the nation of Israel is that they would impact the nations of the world with God's love. How is this fulfilled? It's in Jesus. Jesus coming through the tribe of Judah, of Israel, an Israelite, and through Christ, all of the nations of the world are blessed. From this point, it's in the heart of God to reach the nations. God's heart to reach the nations doesn't begin at the resurrection and the ascension of Christ. When Jesus speaks to the church and tells us to go reach the nations, it's always been in the heart of God to reach the nations through his son, Jesus Christ. God is a missional God. What, is, what do we mean by that? He wants to see all the nations of the world come to know him. Why would he not? Because he's created all of these nations. He's created all of these, these people groups. So we see God's call, we see his promise, but we also see God's purpose. God is raising up Abraham to ultimately bring Christ through his lineage to reach the world. Verse 4, so Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Who did Abram decide to bring with him? Lot, his nephew. That constitutes family, doesn't it? what did God say? Get out of your country and leave your family. Take Sarah with you, but don't take any relatives along with you. What we find in Abram is partial obedience. And this is going to cost him. Lot's going to bring difficulty to Abram. God knew best when he was saying, leave, leave your family. I want you to step out into a completely new venture. 75 years old when he steps out in faith here, that's a good message that it's never too late. Now, Abram and Sarah are living longer than we lived, uh, but this is still a point in Abram's life where he's got some years underneath him. In verse 5, Then Abram took Sarah, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered And the people whom they had acquired in Haran, and they departed to go to the land of Canaan, so they came to the land of Canaan. They get their possessions. We also see the people that they had acquired in Haran. So Abram had slaves. This doesn't mean that God is condoning slavery. I hope you understand that. Abram also has multiple wives. God does not instruct to have multiple wives. Guys, I want you to make sure you know that going into the new year. If you're thinking about having a second or third wife, it's not God's will for you. I've never met a lady that wants to have two or three husbands, though. They don't want to practice polygamy. They're like, no, thank you, right? So not everything in Abram's heart expresses who God is, and we've got to understand that and be clear on that. Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem as far as the Terebeth tree of Mori, and the Canaanites were then in the land. So, what we know today to be Israel, the Canaanites are in the land. Remember that Canaanites are descendants of Ham, and Noah placed a curse upon the descendants of Ham, specifically upon the Canaanites. As you continue to read the Old Testament, it's the Canaanites that plague the children of Israel. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your descendants, I give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. God's very clear, this land of Canaan, God says, I'm giving it to your descendants. So the West Bank, all of this territory that is argued over in Israel today, Who does it belong to? It belongs to the Israelites from a biblical perspective. This is very unique because there's no other place in Scripture where God says this land belongs to this people. I know Texas believes that, but there's nowhere in Scripture where God said that this land is going to belong to the Texans or this land is going to belong to the United States of America, to Americans, except for this piece of real estate Called Israel, God says, I'm giving this land, this promised land, to the descendants of Abraham. So it makes sense that it is the most contested piece of real estate in the world. Because ultimately, it's an argument with God. Ultimately, there's a spiritual dynamic there. Abraham responds to the promise of God by building an altar. God says, this is the place. This is the land that I'm going to give to you. I said, I would show you a land and and this is it. So Abram says, Lord, I believe you and I'm going to respond in worship. Taking stones and building an altar, an animal sacrifice upon the altar. It shows that Abram's a worshiper. In verse eight, and he moved from there to the mountain east of Bethel and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. So right in the middle. And he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. So Abram sojourned, going on still toward the south. We see two characteristics about Abram that are very important in this life of faith. And the first is, is that he is a worshiper. That he takes time to build altars to worship the Lord. And the second is that he's on a pilgrimage. Abram never builds a house once he leaves Ur of the Chaldees. He always chose to dwell in a tent. Hebrews 11 tells us the reason why, because he was looking to a city that had foundations, which builder and maker was God. So even though God had promised him this land, Abraham didn't have his sights on the land of Canaan, on what we know to be today Israel. He didn't make it his mission to say, I've got to take possession of this land. Instead, he put his focus on heaven. He put his focus on a city that had foundations, that had permanency, where God made the city. What his heart really longed for was eternity with God. And I think that that's really wise. Because we have to come to a place in our lives where we go, well, what's my life about? Hopefully it's worship. Hopefully we're an altar builder. Hopefully we're someone who takes time to build altars, to place ourselves upon God's altar and say, God, I love you. That's where satisfaction is found as being in a worshiper, but also not looking to this life to bring permanence. Well, if I just have this house or this car, or if I'm married, or if my kids get to this place, or if I'm single, and if I can get all of these pieces of life together, then I'm going to have foundations. Because This life doesn't have foundations. Cities are changing, people are changing, our lives are changing. The house can't satisfy, the car can't satisfy, and our heart is really designed for eternity with God, and that's what God wants us looking forward to. I don't know if you fall into this mindset, but I tend to set benchmarks thinking, well, once we get to this point in life, it's gonna be easier. And I'm starting to discover, since I had my 60th (laughs) birthday—I didn't, that's a a joke—is that you never have a place in life where you're absent of suffering. You never get to this benchmark where all of a sudden it's easier. Every season of life has its unique challenges, and they're different for each person. But there's no way that we can manipulate or engineer suffering out of this life. But yet I want to. Yeah, I long for the day when things are easy in my flesh. And the reality is, I'm looking to something earthly that's only going to be found in heaven. Heaven's the place where there's security. Heaven's the place where there's the absence of of suffering. And Abraham had the wisdom as he's going through life to worship and live in a tent and saying, I'm just passing through. And the New Testament tells us that we're pilgrims. We're just passing through. Don't allow your roots to go too deep. Don't get it too attached to that house, to that car. Enjoy it, it's a blessing from the Lord, but ultimately we're looking to that city that has foundations. Verse nine tells us that Abram doesn't stop. He continues to go south, and then something happens in verse 10. And we get to the compromise. We go from the call to the compromise. Now there was a famine in the land and Abram went down to Egypt to dwell there for the famine was severe in the land. This makes sense from a logical perspective, doesn't it? Okay, there's a severe famine in the land in Canaan. So I'm gonna go to where the food is. I'm gonna go to Egypt. But the only problem is, is God told him to dwell in Canaan. God says, I want you to dwell here. But now things have gotten hard, so Abram leaves, and he heads down to Egypt, and he's going to get himself in trouble. We need to be reminded how easy it is to give up on God's calling when things get difficult, all Right? When all of a sudden it's not working out the way that we thought it would, when the fruit isn't there, And there's suffering, and there's difficulty, and there's pain, and there's tears, and we're saying, okay, I'm going to go down to Egypt. In verse 11, and it came to pass, when he was close to entering Egypt, that he said to Sarai, his wife, indeed, I know that you are a woman of beautiful countenance. Now, this sounds like a good thing. This sounds like a compliment. He's like, you know what, babe? You're beautiful. You're just so beautiful. However, Therefore, it will happen when the Egyptians see you that they will say, this is his wife and they will kill me, but they will let you live. You're so beautiful that when we get to Egypt, they're going to kill me so that they can marry you. She must have been really attractive. She was probably about 60 years old and lived to be 127 years old. So she's middle-aged at this point. And Abraham is still concerned going, Wow, you are so beautiful that when we get to Egypt, they're going to kill me in order to, to marry you. So here's his plan, the great fearless leader, Abraham. Please say, you are my sister, that it may be well with me for your sake, that I may live because of you. He wants Sarah to lie, saying, okay, just tell him that you're my sister. Now we'll find in Genesis 20 that this is a half-truth, that they were half-brother and half-sister. They weren't complete siblings, but they were half-siblings. And that did happen at this point in history, those types of of marriages. It's the right information with the wrong implication. It's a half-truth. And a half-truth is, is a full why. Even though they're half brother and half sister, what they really are is husband and wife. You know what I'm saying? And that's what he's really trying to protect. Abraham's greatest strength was his faith, but here he falters in faith. He falters in the area that was his greatest strength. And we see this in scripture. It's told that Moses was the meekest man on the face of the earth. Meek means power under control. However, he got angry with the children of Israel, and because of that, he wasn't able to go into the promised land, misrepresenting the Lord. God wasn't angry with the people, but Moses was. We see with Peter. Peter was such a bold man that was good with his words, but his words is the area that he fell. He denied the Lord. And we oftentimes do fall in our greatest area of strength, don't we? It can have great redemptive value, but also a great fallen value uh, as well. I'm so thankful for the honesty of Scripture, aren't you? God could have decided to leave all of these moments out of his people, but he shows us that Abraham's a real person. And he had peaks when it came to his faith. And he had valleys when it came to his faith. He had victories and he had failures, just, just like we do as well. In verse 14, So it was when Abram came into Egypt that the Egyptians saw the woman, that she was very beautiful. The princes of Pharaoh also saw her and commanded, commended her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken to Pharaoh's house. He treated Abram well for her sake. He had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male and female servants, female donkeys and camels. The whole idea is I'm going to be nice to the brothers so I can marry your sister. So he keeps sending all these possessions and cattle and male servants and, and female uh, servants. And I love verse 17, but the Lord, but the Lord God intervenes on Sarah's behalf, but the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Why did God intervene? Because of Sarah. Peter, in his writings in the New Testament, lifts up Sarah as an example of a godly woman who had godly reverence in her heart and was willing to come underneath the leadership of her husband. What's amazing here is that Sarah is willing to follow her husband, even in a bad decision, trusting that God was going to protect her and discipline her husband. So this speaks a lot to marriage. First, to the husbands, is we don't want to be selfish and foolish. What we don't see in Abraham here is he never prays about this decision, Abram doesn't go, okay, God, do you want us to go down to Egypt or do we need to stick it out in Canaan? He just makes a decision that seems to be logical at the moment. We want to seek God, seek his word, seek godly counsel, seek the Lord together with uh, our wives. We also see a tremendous amount of selfishness in Abram. Who's he thinking about? Team Abram, right? I got to survive this. So even if my wife ends up having to be somebody else's wife, at least I'm alive, right? Ladies, how does that sound for a man of God, right? He's putting his own needs before the needs of his wife. And what does God call us to as husbands? To love our wives as Christ loves the church. How does Christ love us? By laying his life down for us. So men, we don't want to be selfish. This kills marriage. Selfishness kills marriage. Instead of putting our wives' needs first, we put our own needs first. And then on a positive note, things seem to be going in such a negative direction. What we see in Sarah is she was willing to come underneath her husband's leadership and trust that the Lord would be faithful to deal with her husband. And it says that God intervened because of Sarah. That's why God intervened in this situation. So ladies, be wise in who you're marrying because God is calling you to follow their lead. God is calling you to come underneath uh, their leadership. And also ladies, be encouraged because Abraham is a great man of God and he loves the Lord, but he also makes mistakes and he falls short. And you're never going to find a man that's not a sinner. That would be great, wouldn't it? And I think sometimes we think that our spouse is not going to be a sinner. And they're like, oh my goodness, you're a sinner. That's what the Bible said all along, right? And your husband may be in a bit of an Abraham funk. You know what I'm saying? But that doesn't represent who Abraham was through his whole life. And Sarah was willing to walk with the Lord and walk with her husband through this dark time through this time where he was in a funk. And we need to do that for one another as husbands and wives because your spouse is going to go through hard times. Every spouse does. And so that's a moment, like Sarah, that you say, okay, I'm going to walk with the Lord and I'm going to walk with him. This would have been a great time for Sarah to give up on Abraham. And a lot of women maybe would have. And she wouldn't have seen all of the work that God was going to do in Abraham. Abraham's life. Let's see how this ends up. God plagues Pharaoh's house. He intervenes because of Sarah's obedience, but Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this that you've done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? He gets rebuked by an unbeliever. That's always fun, isn't it? right, some good conviction. When someone who doesn't know the Lord is Correcting us saying, Why weren't you just honest with me in the first place? Why don't you just tell me that she was your wife instead of your sister? So Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So Pharaoh offers protection and sends them away. So somehow in all of this, by the end of it. Abram and Sarah are graciously protected and provided for by the Lord. Isn't God gracious? So we're learning things about Abraham and Sarah, but we're also learning things about God, that God is gracious, that God intervenes even in our sin and our weaknesses and in our mistakes. But there is also something that's very interesting in this, is they did leave with some male servants and female servants And we'll find in chapter 16 that Sarah has an idea for Abram to go into her handmaiden, Hagar, who is from Egypt. So they come with a female servant named Hagar that will become Abram's second wife, that will become Ishmael. You do reap what you sow. Though God is gracious, God in his grace allows us to reap what we sow. If Abram would have never been to Egypt, there would have been no Hagar. And so the Lord allows Abraham to experience some of the fruit of the seed that he, he planted. Now chapter 13 is so important because it's Abraham's comeback. So we have the call and then the compromise, but then the comeback. In verse 1, then Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, And all that he had and lot with him to the south. And Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. And he went on his journey from the south as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place which he had made there at first, to the place of the altar which he had made there at first. And there Abram called on the name Of the Lord. Abram decides to go back where? Bethel. Where God had told him, this is the land that you're going to inherit. Where he had placed the altar and he had worshiped God. Bethel means house of God. When Abram was in Egypt, there was no altars that were built. What he seemed to lose track of was worship. In this famine, and this difficulty, and in that stress, he lost track of worship, and he compromised. But here, the light bulb goes on after he receives the correction of God, and he says, I've got to get back to Bethel. I've got to get back to that place of worship where I had built that, that altar. A man by the name of Alexander White said this, the Christian life is basically a series of, Of new beginnings. The Christian life is a series of new beginnings. Not only at the new year is there a new beginning. I mean, can I be skeptical a little bit? What's the big deal if the calendar changes? Really, nothing. It went from 2018 to through 2019. Is that that much of a new beginning in and of itself? No apart from Christ, we're going to do the same things we did last year and worse, right? The new beginning is because of Christ. The new beginning is because of the gospel, and because of Christ's payment for us upon the cross, we have opportunity for new beginning every day. That's really what Sean shared with us at our New Year's Eve service, that every morning is an expression of a new beginning that God gives to us that every day his mercies are new. And you may find yourself in a place of saying, I've been in Egypt. Egypt represents the world. I've really gotten my eyes off of the Lord. I haven't been in a place of worship, but you remember your Bethel. And notice what Abraham does. He went from Egypt and he goes back to Egypt. He came out of Egypt and he goes back to to Bethel. So what does your altar look like? What does your Bethel look like? What is your first love relationship with the Lord when you first fell in love with Christ? Remember what that was like and repent and then redo those first works. Make it simple again. Abram gets back to what's simple. He gets back to, to worship and get back to that place where what were the very simple things that I was doing when I first fell in love with the Lord? It sounds a lot of what God spoke to the church of Ephesus in Revelation, where he says, I have one thing against you. You've left your first love. Remember from the place that you've fallen. Repent and redo your first works. Christ says, if you're unwilling to do this, I'm gonna remove your lampstand because Jesus isn't interested in a loveless church. He wants us to be in love with him. So let's remember and redo those first works and it's never too late to come back to to Bethel. And I bet Sarah is like, man, I'm so glad I stuck with God and I'm so glad that I stuck with my man. God was faithful. He protected me from Pharaoh. He provided our needs. And here's my husband realizing what he's done wrong and he's seeking the Lord and he's led us back to this place of Bethel. But if we don't endure with each other, we'll never get to turn the page together and enter into chapter 13. You know what I'm saying? And in chapter 12, it feels like, oh, it's never gonna end. Here, my spouse is a knucklehead. They won't even claim me, right? But yet, God was faithful, and here's Abram coming to this place Of repentance. It's never too late to come back. It's never too late to return to Bethel. In verse 6, verse 5, Lot also, who went with Abram, had flocks and herds and tents. So Lot began to prosper in all this as well. Now the land was not able to support them, that they might dwell together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together." It's kind of a good problem to have, isn't it? They both become so prosperous that the land would not support them. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abraham's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock, the Canaanites and the Perzites that dwelt in the land. So we come to the contention. There's strife. Because they're arguing over the grass to feed all of this cattle, we see Abraham coming in as a peacemaker. So Abraham said to Lot, please let there be no strife between you and me and between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brethren. Abraham says, I want peace. We're family. We don't need to be in a place of fighting. And hopefully we have God's heart for peace and unity. In our families, in the body of Christ, To to realize that it doesn't benefit us to fight together. When the body of Christ fights, who bleeds? Jesus bleeds, because it's his his body. And goes on and says, Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If you take the left, then I will go to the right. Or if you go to the right, then I will go to the left. Now wait a second. Abram's the older family member. He's the uncle. So he can easily say to Lot, look, in order to solve this problem, I'm taking this land over here and you're going over there. I'm going to the right, you go to the left. But Abram doesn't do that. He gives preference to Lot and he says, Lot, I want you to choose. In his desire for peace, it's displayed in his actions. His faith is displayed in generosity. He's trusting the Lord. He's trusting that God will provide for him even if Lot takes the best land. And Lot lifted his eyes and saw all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord had destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as you go towards Zor. So, as Abraham's making this decision, he's a good businessman. And he sees where the good pasture is. He looks at the plain of the Jordan River. And this is quite a compliment. It's likened to the Garden of Eden. And so this is a no-brainer in his perspective. Then Lot chose for himself all the plain of Jordan. And Lot journeyed east. And they separated from each other. So he chooses the plain of Jordan But he doesn't factor in the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah, the cities that are in this plane. It's just simply a financial decision. And it's ultimately going to lead to his destruction. And this is something that we need to be very careful of as we're making decisions, is that we want to evaluate the spiritual first and the physical and the financial second and say, is this gonna be a place that's good for me spiritually? Is this where God wants us to be? Is God calling me to be there? Abraham is willing to go where God calls, and when he gets off track, he course corrects and he comes back. Lot, he's not factoring this in at all. Where is God calling me to be? Where does God want me to be? And where is this gonna be spiritually beneficial? So maybe you're looking at making a job change and moving to a new city. Nothing wrong, but consider the spiritual ramifications to that. What kind of church am I going to get plugged into? Is there a healthy church for me to to be involved in? What's the spiritual climate? Is the Lord calling me there? God may be calling you to a very dark place spiritually, but you've got to know that. Jesus instructed us what? Seek first the kingdom of God and all of these things will be added unto you. Put put the spiritual first. Put a relationship with the Lord first. Make sure that we're careful to ask the Lord if he wants us to live there. It tells us in verse 12, and Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain and pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. So he begins by saying, you know, I I know that I can't live in Sodom because it's wicked. So I'll just put my tent in the plain. But then his tent just keeps getting closer and closer and closer. Next week in chapter 14, we're going to see that he dwells in Sodom. He moved into the city. He's no longer outside of town. He's in the city. And then we'll go into the study later and we'll see that Lot is in the gates, which means he'd taken a leadership position in Sodom. And as we study the totality of his family, when the angels show up say, you got to get out of here, God's judgment is coming on Sodom and Gomorrah, his family thought it was a joke, right? They're like, you got to be kidding me, ha-ha, like God brings judgment. God's some fairy tale. And the only ones that he can convince to go are his wife and two daughters— and they're instructed by the angel, don't look back. But the wife looks back longingly on Sodom and Gomorrah. She's dissolved to a pillar of salt. The daughters get to this cave with their dad. And they're like, we're the only two guys left on the planet. Or two women left on the planet. Dad's the only guy. We've got to get him drunk and have relationship with him. And the spiritual condition of Lot's family is one that is heartbreaking. But the New Testament tells us that Lot was righteous. You're kind of looking at that going, how was Lot righteous? Because his heart was vexed by the wickedness that was around him. Lot never got to the place where it stopped bothering him of the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah. And for that, God calls him righteous. I unfortunately don't know of a story in scripture that isn't more applicable to the culture that we live in. And it's very easy for us to get very close to Sodom and Gomorrah and say, well, I'm just going to dwell here on the outside. And then before we know it, we're dwelling in Sodom and Gomorrah. And then before you know it, we're a leader in Sodom and Gomorrah. And we are to be in the world, but we're not to be of the world. And in our culture and how pervasive the wickedness is, we have to be very careful that we don't lose our love for the Lord and lose our heart for his standards that he has put in place. And it's an old example, but it fits true. When you're cooking up a frog, how do you do it? Well, you put them into a pot, and you turn up the water very slowly. So they hardly realize that the temperature's changing, and before you know it, they're, bo- they're cooked. They're boiled. They're baked. You're eating them, right? And this is the exact attack of the enemy, is that we're in that place where the spiritual climate just starts to change a little bit and a little bit and a little bit and a little bit and what we accept in our lives goes along with it. Before you know it, there's there's spiritual death. And unfortunately, what we're starting to see take place on a large scale is churches are turning away from God's word and are embracing the perver- perversion of the world. And so, you're having God's people that are changing the word of God and taking stances that don't line up with what God says in his word. And so for us, we look at Lot and we go, okay, Lord, please help me. Please help me to not go the way of Lot. I don't want to go to this place of, of compromise. And one of the things that happens with Lot is we don't see him having impact, do we? We don't see him impacting Sodom and Gomorrah. The compromise really got the best of him. So let's finish out the chapter in verse 13. But the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. That's what he didn't factor in. And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward, For all the land which you see, I will give to you and your descendants forever. Forever. So God honors Abram's generosity and comes and reaffirms the promised land to Abram. And once again, we find God giving the land to the children of Israel forever. One of the great testimonies of God is how Israel came back to occupy the land of Canaan in May of 1948 after so many years of not having the promised land to where you're reading the Bible and you're going, well, God must have got it wrong. He said that this land was promised to Abram's descendants, but they don't have the land. And then yet God brought them back into the land in May of 1948. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth then your descendants also could be numbered arise walk in the land through its length and its width for I give it to you then abram moved his tent and went and dwelt by the terebinth trees of mamre which is in hebron and built an altar there to the lord lot never built an altar we don't find lot being a place of being a worshipper so we have this contrast between lot and abram And as we look at our own lives, we learn about God, that God calls and God blesses and God is is gracious. We learn about Abram, that he's willing to follow, that he's a worshiper, that he fails, but he's willing to come back. He's a peacemaker. We learn about Lot being only focused on the physical, and that ultimately brings about a spiritual death uh, in his life. I think that these two chapters are just rich with meaning, don't you? There's so many things to pray through and examine and go, God, what are you calling me to? Do I know my calling and do I know my purpose? I can guarantee you that our purpose as a church, individually and corporately, it also involves the nations. That God has saved us to be a blessing and to share the love of Jesus Christ with others. Think about what what is your calling? What has God called me to? Have I gotten so comfortable that I'm deaf to God's calling in my life? Then we go, you know, am I getting pressed by a famine? Maybe you're in a series of difficulty, a season of difficulty, and you're saying, I just am struggling with trusting the Lord, and Egypt seems so easy. This lie seems so easy. There's this provision in this lie. It's always better to trust the Lord. God's a God of truth, amen? Amen. So if we live in truth, we're living where God dwells. Here's the truth. I'm gonna say the truth, I'm gonna say the truth in love, but I'm not gonna go down this road of of half-truths. I don't want the fruit of a Hagar uh, in my life. But if we have compromised, and we do, and we will, Come back to Bethel as soon as possible. Come back to Bethel. Where's your altar? Where was your first love with the Lord? Get back to that place. Redo those those first things. Is there contention in your life? Look to be a peacemaker. I don't know if I can lay down my rights like Abraham did. Well, God will bless you. He'll be faithful. Try to pursue that path of peace. And then it really stands up off the pages of Scripture to To not go to this way of what? Turn it off if it needs to be turned off. You know, if we're watching some TV show and there's perversion that's being put before us, turn it off. I mean, it affects us. You know, we're being naive if we think, I can just sit here and watch this and it's not affecting me. Those that create it know that it affects us. That's why they create it. Do you know that there's teachers behind the content? They're getting a message across. They're saying, this is what we want you to think. And it's coming into our lives, and we have to make a choice. Am I gonna turn it off and go pursue better things? Or am I just gonna sit here and continue to get more and more comfortable in this filth? What am I displaying to my kids if I don't turn it off and explain to them why? I'm, I'm saying, hey, this is okay. This, this teaching is, is just fine, right? Maybe things in our own lives that we go, man, 10 years ago I would have never accepted this, but now I accept this. Why is that? I'm starting to go the, the way of Lot. And the motivation is found in the life of Christ. Christ said that he hated wickedness and he loved righteousness, so he was anointed with the oil of gladness above all of his fellows. Jesus was the happiest man on the planet, why? Because he hated wickedness and he loved righteousness. Who do you think was living a more full life, Abram or Lot? Who had more physically? Maybe Lot, but Abram had altars, Abram had worship, Abram had fellowship and communion with God. And that's so much richer, and that's so much fuller. It's worth turning it off, amen? It's, it's worth saying, I gotta be careful. I, I don't care if people say, I'm a fuddy-duddy, or I'm a Jesus freak, or I'm religious. I'm not doing this to please people. I wanna be close to Christ. I wanna walk in the light. And then as we walk in the light, in fellowship with Christ, then I believe through his power, we are able to impact the darkness, We're not scared of the darkness, we're not trying to isolate ourselves or build a Christian commune and never be around believers or unbelievers. We say, because we're in Christ, then I can go out and really share the truth with others and love them the way that Christ loves them, but it's not from a place of compromise. Jesus spent time with sinners. He was the friend of sinners. He wasn't trying to get away from darkness but it wasn't coming from a place of compromise. It was coming from a place of righteousness so that when he was with sinners, they're like, wow, you got something different. You know, there's a wholeness about you. And Jesus was able to point them to living water. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for these Old Testament scriptures. They're so rich and they're so deep for us. And God, we know that you called Abraham, but you're also calling us. And we want to hear your calling and be willing to follow, even if it means sacrifice. And Lord, you see compromise in our lives and when we lie and try to cover our own tracks and take care of our own problems. and Lord, we thank you that you always welcome us back out of Egypt and out of compromise. And would you remind us of the Bethel in our life? And we want to be in a place where we're in love with you. And God, the, the poles of this world are so strong. And the message that is coming through media and music and, and Lord, it can so easily pull us into a Sodom and Gomorrah type of environment. And Lord, would you help us to be like Abraham? where we're not looking at how close we can get to Sodom and Gomorrah, but how close we can get to you. And Lord, we do pray that our lives could be used by you to have lasting impact. So Lord, we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name, amen.